church. Is it on? It's saying it's on. Just leave me here with this one then, I guess. Good? All right. We're uh, having a little technical difficulty with a wire on the... uh, A wire on the wireless mic. (laughs) Figure that one out, right? Matthew chapter 5, as many of you, if you have a red letter edition of your Bible, you'll notice that almost all of the words, with the exception of a few at the beginning, are in red. It is considered by many to be the first full transcript of a message recorded that the Lord Jesus preached. He obviously did some preaching before this, but the Sermon on the Mount is the full transcript of the message. Uh, the content of it, uh, Grace and I had the privilege along with Marco and Elizabeth, of being in the spot uh, in May where it is believed that the Lord Jesus Christ preached this message. And uh, it's a beautiful scene, a hillside up against the northern end of the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee, and uh, just kind of makes you want to have church outside. Any takers today? I didn't think so. Uh, We're grateful for the heat and the indoors. But one of the tremendous passages of Scripture is it relates to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ and his preaching. And the title of the message this morning is this, and I'm going to identify throughout all three chapters a a significant theme, uh, if you would, or foundation to the understanding of the Sermon on the Mount, and that is this, I have a father, a heavenly father. Let me just say this, if you're here today and you know Christ as Savior, you have a Heavenly Father. And we're going to consider, I believe, what will be some helpful, some encouraging thoughts for us from this perspective. I want to begin by noticing verse number 16 of Matthew chapter 5. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your, what's the word? Father, which is in heaven. Uh, Go over, if you would, to chapter number 6, chapter number 6, and verse number 9. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Go over, if you would, to chapter number 6 and verse number 32. I'm just giving us a sampling here. For after all these things, the things of this life, the material things of this life, for after all these things do the Gentiles seek for your heavenly Father. Knoweth that you have need of all these things. Folks, we have a heavenly Father. And I'm afraid many times, I know I do, I forget to live in the reality of that, in the light of it. And so I want us to be reminded of that this morning. Let's pray. Father, would you turn our hearts towards you as father today and that we would realize the significance the vital place of that in our understanding as it relates to even how we live 
as your children in this world, as we live as citizens of your kingdom. And so we need your help. And I pray that we would be strengthened and also challenged by what we consider this morning in this message. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. The Bible, in particular in the Old Testament, uses many awesome and stirring terms to describe our God to us. He is called God. It's the Hebrew word Elohim, which speaks of his might and his power. Aren't you glad for the power of God? He's referred to as Savior or Deliverer in the Old Testament. Another name that he has given to her description is he is Redeemer. He is the one that rescues us from the bondage of sin and from captivity. I love the Psalms. He is the rock. He is our fortress. He's our high tower. He is several times in the Psalms. God is called our help. He is called El Shaddai, the God of the mountains. And living where we do, we should have an appreciation for that more than others. Amen? The God of the mountains He is called the God who is the shepherd. He is called the God who is the provider, Jehovah Jireh. He is called Jehovah Nisi, the Lord our banner. Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord our righteousness. Uh, He is Jehovah Rapha, the Lord our healer. He is the shield and the buckler. In Ezekiel, he is referred to as Jehovah Shema. The Lord is there. Aren't you grateful for the presence of God? He's called the Lord, capital L, and then lowercase o-r-d, Adonai, speaking of his being our master, our commander. He is called Almighty, and of course his personal name in the Old Testament is Lord, all caps. He is the I Am, he is Jehovah, stemming from the Hebrew verb of being, so that God as Jehovah is the eternally self-existent one. Out of his existence, everything that exists flows. Okay. He is the beginning. All right. And so the Bible uses many of these awesome terms that stir our hearts. And yet one that should be dear to every Christian today is conspicuously absent from the list I just gave. In fact, in the Old Testament... The concept is rare, almost absent. Listen to what one author said about this important distinction. The whole spirit, and I'm quoting, the whole spirit of the Old Testament religion was determined by the thought of God's holiness. The constant emphasis was that human beings, because of their weakness as creatures and their defilement as sinful creatures, must learn to humble themselves and be reverent before God. Religion, true religion was in the best sense, get this, the fear of the Lord. A matter of knowing your own littleness and confessing your faults and abasing yourself in God's presence, of sheltering thankfully under his promises of mercy. And let me just interject this here. When I hear someone say that the God of the Old Testament was a God of judgment and the God of the New Testament was a God of love and that they're really two different gods... Let me just tell you, the God of the Old Testament was a God of love, and the God of the New Testament is a judge as well. Okay. So these are important things to keep in mind. But he's talking about the emphasis of the Old Testament, the focus. 
Remember that one of the points of the Old Testament was to prepare men for the cross, to show them their need. Paul even said the law of the Old Testament was our schoolmaster to bring us to who? Bring us to Christ. Okay. The author goes on to say this. We are in the Old Testament. We see folks sheltering thankfully under the promises of his mercy and of taking care above all things to avoid presumptuous sins. Again and again it was stressed that we must keep our place, our distance. Remember the base of Mount Sinai, a boundary as the law was being given so that men didn't get close to what was taking place. But there was a distance from the presence of a holy God. This emphasis overshadowed everything else. But then the author continues, in the New Testament we find things have changed. God and religion are not less than they were, okay? We're not talking about a different God. They were not less than they were. The Old Testament revelation of the holiness of God and the demand for humility in man is presupposed throughout in the New Testament. But get this, something has been added. A new factor has come in by which they call him. Or pardon me, a new factor has come in. New Testament believers deal with God as their father. Father is the name by which believers call him. Father has now become his covenant name. For the covenant which binds him to his people now stands revealed as a family covenant. Christians are his children, his own sons and daughters, his heirs. And the stress of the New Testament is not on the difficulty. This is good. It's not on the difficulty of drawing near to a holy God. But the stress of the New Testament is on the boldness and confidence we now have with which believers may approach him. A boldness that springs directly from faith in Christ and from the knowledge of his saving work. Jesus Christ, as the incarnate revelation of God, get this, reveals to us that God is Father. I think about John chapter 1 and verses 10 through 12, he came into his own and his own received him not, but as many as received him, to them gave he power, the right, the privilege to become the sons of God. We were born not of blood, it's not through physical descent, you're not a Christian because your parents were, you're not a child of God because your parents were. It's not through blood, it's not through the will of the flesh, not through good works that a man does. Okay, not through the will of man, it's not a plan that man has concocted, but this plan of the new birth that allows the believing sinner to not just be saved, but to be placed in the family of God, this is God's plan. John chapter 3 and verse number 3, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John fourteen six. it is Jesus that shows us the Father. And I love John chapter 20 and verse number 17. After the resurrection, Jesus is talking to some of the ladies and he tells them, he said, go tell the disciples I'm alive and that I'm going to my father and their father or your father and my God and your God. Isn't that amazing? The father of the son, Jesus Christ, is also your father and mine through faith in Jesus. Galatians chapter 3 and verse number 26, you are all children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. A liberal church years ago had a placard over the doorway that said, you are all children of God. 
But if you leave off that second vital half, that is a false statement because not every person who's been born the first time is a child of God. There's a problem with our first birth. The problem with our first birth is we were born into sin and separated from God because of our sin. But through faith in Christ, we are born again and brought into the family of God. That is how we become a child of God. I think about Ephesians chapter 1 and verse number 3 and all the blessed privileges that are ours. We've been blessed with all these spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus because we are children of God through faith in Christ. And so it is this very reality of God being the Father that the New Testament reveals. It is this very reality that became the early and the central focus of Jesus' ministry and preaching. Jesus is the Son, God is the Father, and all those who trust in Christ for salvation are brought into the family and have God as their Father too. The Sermon on the Mount is considered by many to be the first fully recorded sermon of Christ's in Scripture. Many have called the Sermon on the Mount, as many of you are well aware through Bible reading, Uh, Some have called it the Kingdom Manifesto. A manifesto is a public declaration of the policy, the conduct, the goals of of a body of citizens. And so some have called the Sermon on the Mount the Kingdom Manifesto. Christ is the King, if you would, and all of us as citizens, and this is how we are to conduct ourselves as citizens of Christ's kingdom. Some have regarded it as the code of conduct for kingdom citizens living on earth, contrasted to the prevailing religion of the first century, the religion of mankind, which was an external righteousness. Another has called the Sermon on the Mount laws from heaven for life on earth. And those are all good things and true things, but there is something deeper in the Sermon on the Mount that we must not miss The Sermon on the Mount, in fact, is about the conduct of the believer. It's about the kingdom citizen and living on earth, acting as salt and light. And Jesus would deal with that early in the passage, just following the Beatitudes. That you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. And so it is true that there there is a code of conduct here for kingdom citizens, but... That conduct, get this, is not to be based on viewing these three chapters as rules or a manifesto for conduct. Conduct based on rules, get this, leads to Pharisaism. Conduct based on rules leads to legalism, which in turn can very easily lead to hypocrisy. Externally going through the motions without having been transformed internally. And that is one of the big contrasts that Jesus is making in verse number 17, as we'll see in coming weeks as we look at the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus told his disciples, except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom. I just got to tell you, when Jesus said that, that would have been a jaw dropper. Because the Pharisees were considered from the religious perspective to be the epitome of religious righteousness. And yet Jesus says, yours has to exceed theirs. One of the reasons that he says that is because he is advocating an internal transforming righteousness. But I want you to notice what Jesus does here. And it, I don't know that we can fully grasp the, the shocker that this unveiling would have been. 
And that is, in these three chapters, Jesus 17 times refers to God as Father. 17 times. And here are these disciples who their whole lives and for generations preceded them, preceding them had been brought up under the system of Old Testament Judaism where God was known as Almighty, He was known as Holy, but rarely if ever, almost to the point of absence, was any kind of hint of a description of God being Father ever given, only on a rare occasion. So for Jesus to preach this message and 17 times in three chapters refer to God as Father... I got to tell you, we kind of get used to just talking about it to the point where it doesn't affect us much anymore. But for these disciples in the first century, this would have been like getting bowled over by an ocean wave. As they would have heard of God as their father. And so Jesus unveils God as father and in doing so shows that that relationship God being the father and the believer being the child is the basis for conduct. Get this. So that the conduct of the believer is not founded on rules, but on relationship. Because he is my father. This is how I live. So I say to us this morning... There's no father like your heavenly father. No father like your heavenly father. As we do a very brief analysis in the time that we have this morning, go with me if you would, if you're still there, maybe chapter number 5 and verse number 13. You're the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. He's talking about the believer's influence being like salt. And verse number 14, you're the light of the world. The believer's influence in this world is to be like salt and like light. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. This is fascinating. I told you that in May we were there in the spot where it's believed Jesus preached this sermon. And one evening we walked down to, when we were in Tiberias, uh, to the, the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and we were eating ice cream at a little cafe down right on the water's edge. And we could look north and east across from where we were, and we could see the lights of cities on hills in the night. That's, this is the exact image that Jesus would have here. You don't hide a light. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hid. But then notice how he sums it up. Verse number 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. The word glorify has with it the idea of both add weighty, adding weight to and brightness to. Can I say it in a colloquial way? And that is this. Glorifying your Father in heaven is using your life and your works as a, as a child of the Father, using your life and your works to make others think bigger and better thoughts about God than they've ever thought before. As they interact with you. Now, as it relates to our Father, I think about no father like our Heavenly Father. One of the characteristics that should challenge us, should encourage us, is that our Heavenly Father is, and I'm going to be careful saying this, okay, but He's a Father who makes you proud. Can I say it this way? He's a father who never 
will disappoint you. And because he will never disappoint you, you should be very glad and willing to be shining his praises to all that are around you. This week, Grace and I watched a documentary entitled Show Me the Father. John Luchek had loaned it to us. And I, it was an hour and a half long, and I kid you not, I cried through the whole thing. There was much discussion on the documentary about the failures of some fathers and the successes of other fathers. And there was much discussion, too, about the connection between how a child's experience with an earthly father will often cloud or shape how they view the heavenly father. I think about men and women that I know who, when it comes to an earthly father, they didn't have a good one. On that documentary, there were stories of alcoholic fathers and angry fathers and absent fathers and arrogant, self-centered fathers and abusive fathers and apathetic fathers, fathers who just didn't care. You might say, Pastor, you alliterated all of those. I know. Bear with me. It's easy to remember them, okay? But it's sad. It's a heartache. that Some kids have to grow up with earthly fathers like that. But the very fact that we have a concept of what good fatherhood is supposed to be and we identify deficiencies and failures in earthly fathers, it shows us that we have a positive ideal of what fatherhood is supposed to be. And let me tell you, that derives directly from what the Bible reveals about God as our heavenly father. And something that's important for us to, to bring out right here, and that is this is that a person may not have had a good earthly father. By the way, no one has a perfect earthly father. Jesus is the only one who had a perfect earthly father. Okay, All right. Nobody, no dad near is perfect. If he claims to be, I'd like to have a conversation with him after we're finished. Okay. But the point is this, is any deficiency that we identify in fatherhood, in our own fathers, or in another's father is a testimony, an implication that we have a concept in our heads of what good fatherhood is supposed to be. And let me just say this morning that God is the perfect embodiment and epitome of perfect fatherhood. Okay. And even if a person did not have a good earthly father, I'm glad to tell you that through Jesus Christ you can have a heavenly father who is perfect. And he will never fail you. And so he's a father that will never disappoint I think it's music to my ears when I hear a little kid say, that's my dad. That's my dad. I remember as a kid going to church league softball games. My dad was a center fielder. He could run like the wind. And I remember as a kid watching my dad play center field, and I don't remember his ever missing a fly ball. He, he was just an amazing center fielder. And I remember as a kid watching my dad play church softball. And I remember watching my dad hit softballs and hit home runs. And he ran like the wind. And I remember as a kid thinking, that's my dad. That's my dad. Our father, our heavenly father, is a father who never disappoints. But I want you to notice, secondly, 
He's a father who models perfection. Notice, if you would, verse number 48. Be ye therefore perfect, Matthew 5, verse 48. Be ye therefore perfect as your father, even as your father which is in heaven is perfect. Now, the word perfect here does not mean sinless. That being said, the father is sinless. But that's not what the word here implies. The word here implies wholeness or completeness. And in the context, if you go back up to verse number 43, ye have heard that it hath been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be, in the implied ideas, that you may be known as the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh his son. How does God love is, the, is really the, the, the question here. How does God love? He maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans? So be ye therefore perfect, whole, complete. And the context is this, love like your father loves. And how does the Father love? In this idea of wholeness, completion, perfection. He loves his enemies. And if you and I are to be known in his children, we must do, as his children, we must do the same thing. He is whole. He is complete in how he loves. It's the context of love. You say, Pastor, how does that apply to us? None of us in this room would necessarily consider ourselves God's enemies. Have you ever failed the Father? Doesn't it draw your heart to a place like Luke 15 when you see the Father pictured standing on the porch waiting on the prodigal to come home day in and day out watching the horizon just waiting for the, the head of the sun to poke up over the horizon and then as soon as he sees the silhouette of the sun the father against protocol runs to meet his son to welcome him home that is the love of our father and he models perfect love for us There's no father like your heavenly father. He's a father who never disappoints. He's a father who models perfect love and wholeness and completeness. The idea of the perfection here that Jesus is referring to is this, is that he's not just one who goes through the motions on the the outside, but it all is rooted in his heart on the inside. Get this, God isn't just going through the motions. He loves you to the very depths of his being. God loves, get this, because God is love. A third characteristic of our Father that Jesus provides, get this, is the basis for conduct for the believer as a child of the Father. Notice, if you would, chapter number one, or six, pardon me, verse number one. Take heed that you do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Don't do your giving to be noticed by others. Otherwise, you have no reward of your who? Father, which is in heaven. Drop down to verse number four. Do your giving that thine alms may be in secret, and thy Father, which seeth in secret, shall himself shall reward thee openly. This is the first time that reference is made of five times to the Father seeing in secret. 
Drop down, if you would, to verse number 6. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet. And when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father, which is in secret. And thy Father, which seeth in secret, shall reward thee openly. Verse number 8. Be not ye therefore like unto the hypocrites that he's referenced in verse number 7. For your Father knoweth that what things ye have need of before ye ask him. Verse number 9. When ye pray, pray our Father. Jump over to verse number 14. Well, we'll get to, uh, pardon me, verse number 18. When you fast, don't do your fasting that you appear unto men to fast. But notice verse number 18, that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. I want you to notice thirdly this morning that we have a Father who sees, knows, hears, and rewards. This is in the context of praying and giving and fasting. He's a father that sees in secret when no one else sees. He's a father that knows, get this, before we even ask. He's a father that hears only as a father can hear. Let's not be when we pray as those that approach the throne thinking in our minds that we're approaching a business professional or a banker asking for a loan or a salesman asking for a reduced price. When we approach the Father, we're not approaching one who is our judge or politician. We're not approaching one even as a king, as a subject. We are approaching our Father, and the author of Hebrews tells us we can come boldly as a child. Bursting in. It still happens at my house, and I have teenagers. Just come bursting in. Dad, they're not afraid to ask. What I've noticed is the older they get, the bigger the asking is. But we have a father who sees. Nothing escapes his notice. We have a father who knows before we even ask. He listens as a father to a child and he rewards, he shall reward out in the open. I think of the verse in Hebrews chapter number 11 that our God is not ashamed to call those who believe. He's not ashamed to be called their God. We have a father who just as I mentioned in the first point, the child should say, that's my dad. There's no disappointment in him under this thought. We understand the father said, that's my child. I see, I know, I hear, I reward. I want you to notice also in chapter number 6 that we have a father who forgives. A father who forgives. Notice, if you would, verse number 12. This is in the middle of the model prayer. Jesus says, when you pray, verse number 12, pray like this. Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And then, almost in an abrupt ending, notice what Jesus says. He gives an explanation for how we're to view this matter of forgiveness when others wrong us. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you, understood, your trespasses. Now remember, he's talking to children of the Father. This is not talking about salvation. He's talking about relationship between the Father and the child, those who are already believers. Those who are already in the family. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. 
If this is wrongly viewed as salvation, then that is work salvation. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about a relationship. But he's reminding believers as they view themselves as children of the Father, he's reminding believers of the blessing of the fact that we have a Father who forgives us. Psalm 103, he's like a father that pities the children, pities his children And he forgives us and he does not reward us after our iniquities. In Micah chapter 6 and verse number 18, there's no God like him that passeth by the transgression of his people and delights in mercy. The last words of the Lord Jesus Christ, one of the last words of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, he didn't say, God forgive them. He said, Father forgive them for they know not what they do. Ephesians 4.32, we're to be kind one to another and forgive one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse number 7, it is through the redemption of his blood that we have the forgiveness of sins. In fact, Paul equates those. We have a father who forgives. The word forgive means to release, to send away, to banish the offense. Jesus' final instructions as he teaches how to pray seems to be blunt, but here's how we should think about this. In light of the magnitude of God's forgiveness in our lives, any tenacious, vengeful clinging to bitter unforgiveness on our part shows that we have failed to grasp his forgiveness of us. While unforgiveness in the life of a believer, a child of God, does not mean the loss of salvation, it does mean a strained or an estranged father-child relationship. There's not going to be any fellowship between you and the father if you're harboring unforgiveness. But the focus is this. We're to be looking at how much he has forgiven me of. We have a father who forgives and forgives abundantly. I'm reminded of the illustration I mentioned several weeks ago of a father and a son who had a falling out and the son had wronged the father and the father had at first not forgiven the son and the son in shame and hurt had ran away and they lived in Madrid, Spain and the father took out an article in the main Madrid, Spain newspaper and simply said this, called the first name of his son, Paco, all is forgiven. Please meet me on Thursday at 8 a.m. outside the Madrid newspaper office. And when the father showed up on Thursday at 8 a.m., there were 800 Pacos. It shows the longing of the human heart for forgiveness. And let me tell you, you have it in your father. You also have a father who cares and who secures you. Look at chapter 6 and verse number 26. Jesus here is dealing with the subject of worry. Worry about material things. Worry about the circumstances of life. Five times in this passage, Jesus says, take no thought, take no thought, take no thought. It's another way of saying, stop your worrying. And what is the basis for stopping your worrying? Look at who your father is. 
Because of who your father is, you don't need to worry. Notice verse 26. Jesus said, Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly who? Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Look at verse number 32. We've already read this. Don't ask what shall we eat or what shall we drink or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. It's the idea of they prioritize it. They make it their focus, material possessions, and looking for security and stability in material possessions. Jesus says this, Your heavenly Father knoweth that you have need of all these things. He knows. He cares. He secures. The point is this. We have a Father who settles the worries and who stabilizes the world. I got to tell you, banks can crash in the Silicon Valley all they want to. But that is not causing any fluster whatsoever in the presence of the Heavenly Father in heaven. Politicians can live in their ongoing consistency of fickleness. But my Father, has everything under complete control. As it relates to material needs, as it relates to... I'm reminded of a book I read uh, on fatherhood by a black preacher from uh, Texas. And he would often do this. He would, if his family got all flustered about something, worried about this, what are we going to do about this? He would just walk in and he'd go like this. And I've done it. Just walk in and say, just like that. I've got this. Let dad worry about it. Let dad take care of this. Can I say this? One, two, three. God's got this. Let's do four. Your father's got this. Okay. We have a father who cares. I was reminded that the Toyota Camry that we just bought has reminded me of my boyhood days. My dad, uh, the, the vehicle that I remember about my dad is a 1982 brown Toyota Corolla wagon. Five-speed manual transmission. I learned to drive on it. He got it, I think he bought it brand new, and then when I was a teenager, learned to drive on it. I distinctly remember my very first driving lesson. It did not go well. Dad took me out on an old backcountry road, gravel country road, and I was working up through the gears, and uh, there was a T, an intersection up ahead of us that was shaped kind of like, well, from your perspective, it would have been shaped like this. We were coming this way, and my dad said, son, there's a turn, and I froze. He said, son, there's a turn. Son, there's a turn, and I was through the intersection, and I still to this day do not know how my dad did all that he did in a split second. In a split second, he reached over, turned, and this car did not have power steering, turned the wheel twice, knocked the car out of gear, and jerked up the emergency brake all in about a second and a half. Saved us from hopping through that ditch and wrecking the car. Instead, we come to a stop, sitting partway in the ditch like this, leaned over, and we never, I never said a word. I just reached over and undid my seatbelt as if I was going to get out because I figured my driving lesson was done for the day. Dad looked at me and said, what are you doing? I said, I just figured you are going to drive from here. He goes, uh-uh. He said, I'm here. He said, we're okay. You're driving. And so I did. He showed me how to start it in low and get it up out of the ditch, and we got out of the ditch just fine. 
But you know, I thought about that the whole world could have just been a disaster in an instant. But my dad, I'm telling you what, turned the steering wheel with no power steering twice. He probably was on an adrenaline rush, okay? Knocked it out of gear and jerked up the emergency brake all in a split second. Saved us from having a bad accident. Let me tell you something. A good father will do that. But you have a heavenly father who in his omnipotence and his sovereignty secures and stabilizes and settles. I also see in chapter number 7, as we continue this brief overview of the Sermon on the Mount, notice verse number 7 of chapter 7, and I'm bringing this to a conclusion after just another thought or two. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Jesus giving instruction here. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that ask, uh, asketh, receiveth, and he that seeketh, findeth, and to him that knocketh, it shall be opened. Or what man is there of you whom if he, his son asks bread, will he give him a stone? Your son asks for a loaf of bread because he's hungry. You're not going to give him a rock. Or if he asks a fish, will he give him a serpent? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your who? Father, which is in heaven, give good things to them that ask him. I want you to know this as well. You have a father who gives. And the only kind of gifts that your father gives are good gifts. Good gifts. Let that settle in. The only kind of gift that the heavenly father gives is a good gift. You say even things that seem bad, he's got a good purpose in it. He only, only gives good gifts. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. John 14.16, I will pray the Father and he shall give you another comforter. James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights. Ephesians 3 and verse number 20, now to him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. Romans 8.28, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. Psalm 84.11, the Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Hebrews 11.6, he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. You have a father who gives, and every gift that he gives is good. And number seven, and I'll just mention this one and conclude. You have a father who keeps his promises. Think about the failures of fatherhood, and many times earthly fathers... Even the best of earthly fathers will fail in keeping a promise. Words that I do not like to hear in my house are, but you said. I'm glad that there's never a, but you said, that I can say to the Father, but that not he will keep his promise. I, I get this from chapter 7 and verse number 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now remember, one of the themes of the Sermon on the Mount is the contrast between external righteousness, people who aren't truly saved, and people who are just religious, uh, going through the motions as opposed to people who've truly been saved and have God as their father. Notice this, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, not every religious person is going to enter into the kingdom of heaven, but, notice this, he that doeth the will of my father which is in heaven. Now, as it relates to getting into heaven, we have to ask the question, okay, what is the will that needs to be fulfilled? 
What is the will of God that needs to be done? 1 Timothy chapter number 2 and verse number 3. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And it's his will that all should come to repentance. 2 Peter 3, 9, God is not willing that any should perish. That's the will of God. So in doing the will of God, I recognize myself as a sinner, that I'm separated from him. I call out in faith upon the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in his finished work. I'm made a child of God, and that's how a person gets into the kingdom of heaven. And get this, when I do what the Lord asks of me as it relates to becoming a child of God, he keeps his promise, and I am guaranteed of heaven. And by the way, he's the father who keeps all of his other promises too. All the promises of God in Christ Jesus are yea and amen. Yes, and it is true. And so I conclude with this. Let us remember this morning that we have a father who never disappoints. He never fails, and therefore he is worthy to be praised. He is worthy to be reflected, to be boasted in, in our world. We have a father who models perfect love and is a pattern for you and for me as to how we're to love. But let us keep ourselves in his love and remember the perfect love that he has for us even when we fail him. We have a father who sees and knows and hears and rewards and it tells us that he is completely trustworthy. We have a father who forgives. And in seeing how he has forgiven us, it sets a pattern for how we should forgive others we are therefore freed to forgive because, get this, when you and I hold on to bitterness and unforgiveness, we are damaging ourselves. We have a Father who cares and secures, and because of that, we can live worry-free. We have a Father who gives, and what a joy it is to be on the receiving end of every good gift that he gives, and it also sets a pattern for us in our own giving. We have a father who keeps his promises and we can rest in that whatever he has said, he will do. As we focus on and live in the reality of God as father, as our father, as my father, as your father, it motivates me as his born adopted child to live in a way that reflects daddy. When my dad and I are out in public together, we will often have people say, you go together. I can be in a place where my dad is known but not there, and people can say, you're Dan Dietrich's son for sure. I can tell by the way you walk. One of my kids, no, it was one of my nieces, said to me recently, she goes, when I hear you preach, you sound more and more like Grandpa. And my dad is one of my favorite preachers, so I take that as a compliment. But there's a likeness between father and child. And may I say this, there should be a likeness between father and child. One other application, and we'll conclude. This documentary that we watched this week, and I would encourage you to watch it. It'll challenge your heart. It'll encourage you may convict you, but it'll help you. Show me the Father. One of the men being interviewed was Jim Daly, who is uh, Jim, James Dobson's successor at Focus on the Family. And, and there's not a full advocacy of the Focus on the Family ministry and so on. But Jim Daly grew up with a, an 
alcoholic, apathetic, biological father and an abusive stepfather. And he got saved in the middle of all of that through the influence of a godly coach in his life who was a father figure and showed him Christ. And there were tears as Jim Daly was talking about this in the interview. But he said at one point he was looking back with regret on the failure of earthly fathers in his life, both biological and step. And he said one day he was just pouring out his complaint to the Lord, and he said, Lord, how come you didn't give me a good father like some others have? And he said the Lord just clearly impressed his heart. Have I not been a good father to you? And I don't know all your stories about earthly fathers. But I want you to know, you may have had a failure as an earthly father, but you have a heavenly father who will never fail you. He sent his son to purchase your soul's salvation so you could be brought into his family. And now, as a heavenly father, he is all and more that you will ever need. Father-like, the songwriter said, father-like, he tends and spares us. And what a tremendous reminder to us that we have a father. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that as we leave here this morning, this afternoon now, we would do so with a renewed gratitude in our heart for the privilege that it is to call you Father. I pray that uh, we would leave challenged to make sure that our conduct matches the conduct and the character of our Father and recognize what a privilege it is for us to model you, to reflect you, because of what a good Father you are to us. I pray for one or more here this morning that may not be sure that you are their Father, that you are their Father. They would realize that by faith in Jesus Christ, they can become a child of God today. The sin debt has been paid for through the work of Christ on the cross. The gift of eternal life is offered if they'll but receive it by faith. And then, Lord, I pray that you would use this reminder of who you are as our Father to just settle our hearts, to just calm us. In the midst of a world that seems to be tossing to and fro and reeling like a storm-tossed ship, I thank you that we can know that our Father is at the helm that you're in perfect control. Thank you that you're our Father. And I pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.